Welcome back to the Dante's Divine Comedy Podcast. Hope you're having a great morning and a great day. My name is Richard and I will be your host today. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Epistle number 7 that Dante wrote to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII of Luxembourg. So we have 13 epistles from Dante and this is number 7. And this is... Uh, he's addressing this to what he called his shining hope for uh, the return of peace to Florence. And this is also very much the, the big picture politics of of Europe at the time with the French king and then the Holy Roman German Empire and the the papacy and also Dante's, Dante's role in trying to, <laughs> to uh, encourage Henry VII to, to come into Italy and then to liberate Florence. So we're just gonna we're gonna go through the letter and then also a bit of the historical context with Henry VII. But we're gonna start with just a bit of recap from the previous episodes where we had how Dante went from kind of being a prior in Florence and then firmly in exile in 1304. So in 1304, Dante wrote a letter to Cardinal Nicolò da Prato with the hopes of peace coming back to Florence. Uh, but this cardinal gave up after three months in Florence and then he left. And his, his leaving words were, since you will have war and anathemas and will neither hear nor obey the messengers of Christ vicar, nor have peace or repose among yourself, remain as you list with the malediction of heaven and the holy church upon your heads. So this is kind of when the cardinal gave up Florence. And at the same time, this is when Dante also breaks with the, the white Guelphs and he becomes, as he calls it, a party of one. So we're just going to read very quickly from how he's describing this when he talks with his uh, great-great-grandfather Cacciaguida in Paradiso. Because his great-great-grandfather is giving him a prophecy, since this was the story is set in the year 1300, about what, what the future will bring for Dante. So he also then says that you will be you will be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly. And this is the first arrow the bow of your exile will shoot. And then but what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad veil. So this is referring to the the Bianchi. And all ungrateful, all completely mad and vicious, they shall turn on you. But soon their cheeks, not yours, will have to blush from shame. Proof of their bestiality will show through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have become a party of your own. So this is how Dante describes <laughs> through his great-great-grandfather what's going to happen and the break with the Bianchi. And then the Italian is Si che a te fiabello averti fatta parte per te stesso which is a little bit more like that you made a part of yourself or kind of you parted yourself from, from the rest. So after this, then, from 1304, Dante goes to Bologna in 1305, which had a, a, a very, very, one of the best universities uh, in Europe at the time. And in 1306, he goes to Padova, Treviso, Lunigiana, and there he stays with the Malaspina family. And he also gets a a diplomatic mission to create a peace with the Count and Bishop of Luni in Liguria with the Malaspina. And this is successful and this also kind of raises the reputation of Dante at the time. 
And then in 1307, he moves to Casention with the Counts Guidi. And this is where he begins to write the Inferno, first book of the trilogy of the Divine Comedy. So that was just a little bit about Dante from 1304 to 1308. And then we're going to get to uh, the bigger context here with the big picture and Henry VII. So we also we have a map, uh, a link to a map in the description, which is very helpful to to see how Europe uh, looked at this time in during the reign of uh, Henry VII. We're going to get a better idea of kind of the the dynamics with these three big uh, powers of the empire and the French king, and then also the papacy. So in 1308. There's an election for the new emperor of the Holy Roman German Empire. The French king, Philip the Fair, he wants Prince Charles of Valois, his brother, to be the emperor. This is the same Charles that invaded Florence in 1301 in November uh, at the request of both Boniface VIII and uh, Corso Donati. So this is kind of a, an old enemy, like a very... Uh, strong enemy of Dante that was maybe getting into power of the of the Roman Empire. Uh, but Pope Clement V, who is now soon in Avignon, he prefers Henry VII of Luxembourg and Henry VII wins this election. So, uh, he's then crowned in 1309 and he's just 36 years old. But it's interesting to note that Pope Clement V, he is, this is at the point where you have a French pope and the, and the papacy is moving to France. So, so this is after, since Boniface went too far and he had this, uh, this decree about the unum sanctum, like every person on the planet was under the authority of the church. The French king takes the papacy and takes it to France. But the papacy in itself is not so comfortable with being so under the authority of the French king. So that's why they are supporting than Henry VII instead to be the, the, the Holy German Emperor. So what happens then in 1309, you have Henry VII, he wants to strengthen his empire and have a coronation in Rome, and then he invades Italy in 1310. And this has at that point the blessings of Clement V and the Papal States in the beginning. So this is the shining hope of Dante that now you will get a good emperor that will come into Italy and then liberate Tuscany and Florence and push back the papacy. But what happens then when Henry VII comes into Italy is that he is quickly stopped by the strife and entrenched divisions in Italian city-states and the conflict between the Guelph and Ghibelline factions. So he then wants to install imperial vicars in the big city-states. He starts with Turin, then he moves on to Milan. And then things start to halt. He attacks Cremona and he has a four-month siege of Brescia. And during this time, Florence is starting to make alliances with Lucca, Siena and Bologna and other smaller city-states. So this is kind of the, the, the first phase of Henry VII coming into Italy. And in the midst of this, Dante writes this letter to the emperor in April 1311. So now we're going to look at the letter. And the letter has eight parts. It's also interesting to note here that uh, 
So Dante says in uh, in Purgatory, he you have the seven vices. He talks about his three main vices being pride, wrath, and lust. And in this letter, you will really see the wrath part of Dante, kind of in, in full fruition. Kind of, um, it's it's kind of vicious at parts here how he describes the situation, which we will now just read his words uh, from this letter. Uh, the opening is, as usual, kind of very high tone. So he says, uh, At the feet of the most holy, conqueror, and excellent master, Lord Henry, by divine providence, king of the Romans, always august, uh, by his most devoted servant, Dante Alighieri, a Florentine and unservedly an exile, and all Tuscans everywhere who desire public peace, we are kissing the, the ground like La Terra, in front, of, in front of the emperor. So that's the opening. And then it goes into different phases, this letter. You have the anticipation that comes here, where he says, Hence long have we wept by the streams of confusion, and we have implored without ceasing the protection of the just king that he would overthrow the satellites of the savage tyrant and re-establish us in our rights. And when you, successor of Caesar and Augustus, crossing the summits of the Apennines, brought back the venerated Tarpeian ensign, forthwith our deep sighs ceased, and the floods of tears subsided. And, rising like the sun that is eagerly longed for, a new hope of a better age shone upon Latium. So this is how he frames the anticipation. And then he quickly goes on to um, complaining about the delays and why Henry VII isn't moving faster into Italy. So he says here, But we marvel what sluggishness delays you so long, since now for some time a victor in the valley of the Po, you forsake, overlook, and neglect Tuscany, as though you believe the rights of the empire to be protected by you were circumscribed by the boundaries of Liguria, not fully understanding, as it seems to us, that the power of the Romans is limited neither by the confines of Italy nor by the shores of three-horned Europe. So the boundaries of Liguria is referring to kind of the, the northern, uh, northern part of Italy, the northern city-states here. So this is the, the little um, claim he has now <laughs> against the emperor. And then he goes on with a, a warning that he says, Let it not result from the caution of Augustus that the Tuscan tyranny is strengthened in the confidence of delay, and that day by day, by encouraging the insolence of the wicked, it gathers new force, heaping rashness on rashness. And then he continues in part six, which is kind of more of the wrath is coming here. You waste the spring as well as the winter at Milan. And do you think to slay the baleful Hydra by striking off its heads? So Hydra is this mythological creature who killed uh, Hercules, like the snake with, uh, with many, many heads. If you should read the mighty deeds of the glorious Alcides, you would see that you are deceived even as was he, before whom the venomous animal grew with each loss his head sprouting forth anew into many, 
until he of the great heart vigorously attacked the seat of life. And then he goes on with some more examples. And what will you, the sole ruler of the world, proclaim that you have accomplished when you have bowed the head of refractory Cremona? Will the, not the madness of Brescia or Pavia then be suddenly inflamed? I in truth. And alas, when again the scourge shall cease to be plied, it will soon arise at Vercelli, at Bergamo and elsewhere until the radical cause of this abundant growth is removed and the root of so great a frenzy being torn out, trunk and thorny branches dry up together. So it's now hinting to kind of the root of the problems and this uh, many-headed snakes that you can cut off the heads, but it wouldn't, which are then like the symbols of the different city-states that are in alliances with kind of the source. And then comes maybe the harshest part of the letter in part seven. Do you not know perchance almost excellent of princes? Nor can you see from the height of such majesty where this stinking fox lies safe from the hunters. So it's now alluding to Florence. Forsooth the caitiff drinks neither in the waters of the precipitous Po nor in those of your Tiber but the streams of the Arno thus poison his lips, and Florence, do you perchance know it not? Is this dire evil called? This is the viper that darts at the bowels of its mother, meaning Rome or the papacy. This is the sick sheep that contaminates the flock of its master by contact meaning contaminating all the other city-states with this kind of alliance uh, building and an uprising against the, the emperor, Henry VII. And then he keeps uh, comparing Florence with two mythological figures of Mira and Amata. And then he says, In very truth, she strives to rend her mother into pieces with the ferocity of a wiper, when against Rome, who fashioned her after her own pattern and likeness, she sharpens the horns of rebellion, all the time now referring to Florence. In very truth, from her evaporating corruption, she exhales an infectious smoke and thence the neighboring flocks, all unconscious, waste away, while she attaches the neighbors to herself by seducing them with lies and flatteries and infatuates the allies. In very truth, she glows with lust for the incestuous embraces of her father, then Florence with Rome, uh, when she endeavors with shameless effrontery to violate against you the agreement of the supreme pontiff, father of fathers. In very truth, she resists the commandments of the divine while worshiping the idol of her own will and spurning the legitimate king she is not ashamed, mad that she is, in her power of doing evil. To barter rights that are not hers with a king, not hers. And then he ends the letter with a little bit of an encouragement. So he says then, Take unto thyself courage from the eyes of the, the Lord God of Sabbath, in whose presence thou art to act, and overthrow this Goliath with the sling of thy wisdom, and with the stone of thy strength, for at his fall night and the shadow of fear will cover the camp of the Philistines, the Philistines will flee, and Israel will be set at liberty. 
You see, this is very much like the Divine Comedy when you use biblical uh, imagery and stories to to metaphorically describe a situation. Then our heritage, deprived of which we weep without ceasing, will be restored to us in entirety. And as now, while exiles in Babylon we lament in remembering holy Jerusalem, so then as citizens and breathing in peace with gladness shall we call to mind the miseries of turmoil. It's kind of a nice touch at the end there, kind of when all this is free and we're liberated, we will uh, gladness kind of look back at what we had left behind, the miseries of the turmoil. So that is the letter that Dante is sending to Henry the seventh when he has his one year into the descent into Italy. And then we're going to go through now just a little bit of kind of the aftermath of this, what happens historically. So during the years of 1311 and 1312, Henry captures some more cities. He appoints imperial vicars in the city-states. Uh, for example, Cangranda de la Scala in Verona, who is then the one who becomes Dante's patron, which we have in another episode. And then Henry VII reaches Rome, which is now in a civil strife with the Orsini and Colonna families. Henry is crowned in the Lateran Palace in a sort of a ceremony. Then he's forced to leave and he travels up to Arezzo in Tuscany. And then in September 1312, there is the siege of Florence from Henry VII. He has 15,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. And Florence has 64,000 defenders. So... There's a brief kind of battle, but then uh, the Florentines realize, like outside of Florence, they realize that they can't beat him in kind of an open battle. So they just fortify the city. And then you have six weeks of this siege against the walls. And after six weeks, Henry VII abandons the siege. He has already taken big parts of Tuscany, and then he goes to Pisa. And then he starts another siege against Siena, but then he gets malaria. And then, in a small town of Buon Convento near Siena, he dies quite suddenly on August the 24th in 1313. And at that time, he's only 40 years old. So that is kind of those, that this uh, th three, four years of descent into Italy and Dante's shining hope that he will get back to his beloved Florence and that peace will come. Like, more importantly, that there will be peace in Florence and in Tuscany. So... We're going to just read now a couple of, um, of excerpts of how Dante is describing Henry in the paradise. So he says here, this is in, um, in Canto 30 in paradise, like we're in the Empyrean, the, the highest heavens, the tenth sphere. And this is a part of the final speech from Beatrice to the pilgrim. And they're, they're now in this kind of the white rose, as they call it, where is where the place where all the blessed souls are kind of living or in in the Empyrean. It's, the, the image is both like a giant rose or also kind of this giant uh, stadium, kind of Colosseum-ish kind of stadium uh, with different levels and then full of people from biblical stories and many from Dante's life as well. And then Beatrice says that, in that great chair, already set with crown above it, and which draws your eyes to it, before your summons to this nuptial feast, shall sit the soul, predestined emperor, of that great Henry, who one day will come to set straight Italy before her time. 
This is another little poetic touch here that he says, the great Henrik, he comes, but it is too early. Like Italy is not in the condition yet to be brought to peace. And Beatrice continues, you are bewitched with blind cupidity that makes you starve to death like a poor child who has a nurse but pushes her away. So this is referring to Florence. And then, and at that time, the prefect of the divine court will be a man who publicly agrees to tread his path, but not so secretly. So this is referring to Pope Clement V, who then, again, in the beginning, supports Henry VII, in part to preserve his own power and to make sure that the French king isn't too powerful. But then, in part because of the problems of Henry VII, the Pope is changing his allegiance more towards the French king. Uh, and he and she ends, the Beatrice ends everything, but the, but the divine will not permit him to stay long in holy office. Uh, again, Clement V, because he will die one year after Henry VII. So that's where Dante places Henry in his comedy, kind of like at the highest heavens, um, in a great chair with crown and uh, through the voice of Beatrice. So, to sum it up now, so the letter that Dante writes to Henry VII was written in 1311, and then with Henry's death two years later, Dante's shining hope was gone. And then the day after Henry VII dies, Dante accepts the invitation from Cangrande della Scala to live and to be in the court of the della Scala. And there he stays, uh, likely for most of the time, between 1313 to 1318. This is also seen as kind of the third phase of Dante's exile. And then also while he's there in 1314, Dante publishes the first edition of the Inferno. Dante is then 49 years old. And in around 1316, still living in Verona, Dante publishes the first edition of the second volume of the Purgatory. So that's all we wanted to uh, to show in this episode. Uh, from 1304, the descent of Henry into Italy, and then how that ends, and a little bit of the aftermath. So that's kind of the larger context of this epistle, number seven, which really again shows uh, Dante's engagement in big politics, his his style with mythology, with biblical stories, like using metaphors, and also how angry he is, and that he's not holding back in both criticizing and, um, and lifting the emperor up at the same time. So, hope some of this was interesting, and uh, some, um, some uh, new food for thought. And with that, as always, thank you so much for listening, and see you again in another episode.